while we wait, we pray. That's the title of the message from John 16, verses 16 through 24. While we wait, we pray. And this uh, message fits in with the other messages we've had previously on the Lord's uh, teaching in the upper room. It's the culmination, it's the end, it's the bookend in a sense. He brings some ideas and some thoughts together in this passage that I quickly want to bring to you this morning. And I think it's great preparation for a new year. An emphasis on waiting for the return of Christ, but actively praying and doing His will. I mean, there have been many fringe groups around the Christian faith who have pushed and encouraged people to uh, wait on Christ. But their waiting is not the biblical waiting. Their waiting is to sell everything and move to a mountain somewhere and wait on His return. Or, as some in our day are preaching this Zionist theology, where they're actually funding a war effort against uh, the Palestinians because they think that by doing that, they're ushering in the return of Christ. So they're murdered. They're actually funding the murder of hundreds of people in the Palestinian region, uh, thinking that in doing that, they're bringing Christ back sooner because that'll mean Israel takes over all the dirt over there and, and then Jesus can come. It's the wrong kind of waiting. It, it, it's not productive. It's, it's actually destructive. Both of those are very destructive. And then there's this forgetfulness that happens, isn't it? And that's kind of where we end up most of the time, myself personally. I mean, we don't even think about Jesus coming again. I mean, when somebody brings it up, we think, well, that'd be nice. But then we just move on about our daily business as if, you know, he's coming way down the line in the future. Uh, you know, and we don't give it a lot of thought. So all of those are wrong. Jesus says in our passage that we're to wait for his coming and pray during that time as a woman does her new, her waits on her newborn baby. Now, I've not ever been pregnant. That's a good thing. Though if, if you watch uh, Grey's Anatomy, you know that a man can be pregnant. In some strange twist, you know, of their show. You might not be a Grays fan, that's okay. Uh, but, you know, they had that on their show some time back. I've never been pregnant. No plan on ever being pregnant. But Jesus says to wait. And in that waiting, it's like a woman waiting on a newborn baby. Now, I've not ever been pregnant, but I've seen my wife in pregnancy. Some of you men can commiserate with me, can't you? There's all this hormone rush. They can't help it. It's the way God made them. That's one of the few times in their life they can actually blame God for the way they feel. They're up and down, understandably. All kinds of things changing in their life, right? While at, not not to quote my wife, but something similar to what she would say, I, you you just get to enjoy all this time, and I I have to suffer, you know. But in her suffering, and her waiting, and her anticipation, and you've been there, men. The house, you know what I'm saying? The house is not clean enough. The rearranging is not ever done quite, is it? The painting. I mean, you know, something about being pregnant, they want fresh paint. 
I think it's because they can't smell paint by the doctor's orders, so then therefore all the painting can get done, you know, during their pregnancy when they don't have to do it. You know, we need to paint, but I can't do it. Sorry. (laughs) You know, but they don't sit back and just say, well, when it comes, it comes. I mean, they even get active towards the end. And, you know, I can remember at doctor's appointments with all of our children, you know, Amy's talking to the doctor. He says, well, the more you walk, you know, that can increase your chances of going into labor. Well, we were walking like we were training for a marathon, you know. Activity, not just passive, laissez-faire. If it happens, it happens. There's anticipation. There's work going on. There's action. There's, there's this desire to see the day get here. And then the day comes and there's all this suffering. Now, that's... That's something I can't understand, and I thank God I can't understand. I don't mind painting, cleaning my house. I'm just glad I don't have to go through what they go through. You know, I'm telling you, abstinence programs will become top of the chart if they take girls at about 12, 13, 14 years old to the delivery room with no meds. All of a sudden, you couldn't get a guy close to them, right? I mean, it's suffering. I figured I'd get an amen from women on that. Amen, you know. A quiet congregation. They're suffering. It's a. Let's just be honest. It's an awful day. It's long. It's painful. It's excruciating. It's dangerous. Lots of people die during the process of giving birth. I mean, it's it's a difficult time. But then that last. Effort is given and that baby is born and the doctor slaps that baby on the back or suctions its nose or what and the plug, mucus plugs come out and the lungs expand and this screech comes out, right? It's that quick. It's better than any pain medicine I've ever seen or experienced. And I you know, I'm just watching my wife's face from utter pain displeasure, agony, worry, concern, and when that baby draws breath and cries, melt. It all goes away. Forgets all that labor. Holding that baby. Looking into its scrunched up but beautiful face. Smelling the baby. Touching the baby. Holding the baby. Feeding the baby. I mean, all and... And literally, the last month of pregnancy, they have sworn off on ever having children again. Right? I mean, every time. After our first, we're not doing this anymore. You know, for the last month. And then the baby comes. I'm talking about almost immediately. We're talking about next time we have a baby. Why? Because the hope is fulfilled. And the pain and suffering is worth it all. And Jesus says... In our passage, that's what it's like when you're dealing with waiting on my return. You're suffering. You're downtrodden. You're scared. You don't know how, you, you know how it's supposed to end, but you don't know how it'll ever end that way. You've ever had that feeling? The world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? And how could God ever change this scenario? But he says, it'll be just like when the baby's born. When I come, all that suffering. 
you'll say it was more than worth it. Paul got a glimpse of heaven and he said, whatever you're suffering now is not worth being counted as equal to the joy you're going to experience when you go into the kingdom. He just got a taste of it. He just, he just got caught up in a vision and saw it just for a little bit. And then he said, whatever I'm suffering here on the earth, that's, man, that's beans. Let's don't even keep score. Whatever it is that gets me into that kingdom, I'm game. Let's do it. Let's suffer. Let's go. That's the waiting, the anticipation. Paul didn't frivolously wait. He didn't sit by. He didn't sell everything he had and move to a mountain. He didn't try to bring it in by violence. But he went to work for the will of God, anticipating the come of Christ, the coming of Christ. And he waited with hope, like a mother carrying a child. Now, I painted for you a tough picture, but with a happy ending. And you think your life is difficult as a believer. And it is difficult. There's no question. But now I want to tell you the other side of the story. Some of you have experienced what I'm about to describe. Nine months of carrying a child. All the pain and suffering of delivery. And no reward. Your child is dead. There's no statement at the end of that pregnancy. It was all worth it. There's a lot of grief, a lot of gnashing of teeth, and a lot of wailing. Welcome to the life of an unbeliever. Because unbelievers suffer in this world. And unbelievers have their hopes dashed time and time again. And when they get to the end and when the baby is delivered, there's no joy. There's no relief. There's only agony on top of agony. Pain on top of pain. Suffering that never ends. Next time life is difficult for you as a believer, think about your lost neighbor who will not only suffer for 80 years in this life, but will suffer for millions upon millions upon eons into eternity. And so, I'm not trying to paint a picture that we're all fat and happy and we don't suffer. We suffer. But there's joy, as the psalmist says, in the morning. There's joy in the future. Woe unto you if you're suffering now only to suffer for eternity. That's our text in a nutshell. And now I want to emphasize something and then we'll be finished. What I want to emphasize is that the end of the chap at the end of the passage in verses 23 and 24. And then I want to explain those verses as best as I, I know how and then put them in the context of the suffering and what I've just described in childbirth. While we wait, we pray. I mean, we don't sit inactive. We, we, we anticipate, we prepare. It says in verse 23, in that day, Jesus speaking, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, in the day that I come again. I, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This is the third time he's made that statement in the upper room. If you ask something in my name, you'll get it. I know that's been bothering some of you. I know that our women, some of our women had a Bible study 
um, this past uh, fall, and it dealt with prayer, and that was one of their questions out of the Bible studies. What does that mean? If you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. I mean, that's a hard statement. We want to talk about that a little this morning. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Here's the, in, the doctrine of prayer in a nutshell from Jesus in one statement, okay? If I might do that, and you listen, and you can agree or agree to disagree. But this is what I think he says in three passages. John chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. John chapter 15, verses 7 through 8. John chapter 16, verses 23 through 24. Wrap them together, and this is the statement I think you come with. We should place our hope in the glory of God, which will drive us to pray according to God's will in the name of Christ for our joy in His glory. That's what Jesus teaches about prayer. It has nothing to do with Lamborghinis, raises, healthy children, long life. Jesus doesn't teach any of that about prayer. He teaches that we should place our hope in the glory of God. Which will drive us to pray. Our hope in the glory of God will drive us to pray. Drive us to our knees. Because we'll want the hope, our hope to be increased by seeing His glory come. It will drive us to pray according to His will. In the name of Christ. For our joy and His glory. If, if I could just... Say one statement about prayer, that's it. That's, that's all there is. That does not answer your questions, I know, about the very important daily prayers which you offer up that may or may not be according to the will of God. I offer them too. I mean, the prayers that some pastors tell you to pray so you can have a parking space. I can't answer that. I don't know if God answers those or doesn't answer those. I guess it it would fall back on this statement, though. If it is for His glory, according to His will, in the name of Christ, for your joy and for His glory, then yes, He answers when you pray for the parking space to open up at the front of the parking lot so you don't have to walk. That's that's the only way I know to answer. (laughs) I can tell you this. When you put it in this context... Those prayers do get kind of frivolous. And I'll give you one even harder. Prayers for your comfort and prayers for your family's safety and prayers for all sorts of things that are much more serious than a parking space get a little frivolous. And they become a lot less important. We still pray them. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but... Our focus is not on that. Jesus never focused on it either. I can't find anywhere where Jesus said in his prayer, make my life easy. Oh God, I don't want to go to bed hungry. He may have prayed that, but it's just not recorded for us. I see him praying a lot in the scripture, and it's always about God's glory His will, in His name, for His joy and for God's glory. And we would insert ourselves there. For our joy and for His glory. So, now, unpack that big statement by going back and looking. I I, I don't want you to just take my word for it. Let's go to John 14, 
flip over just a page or maybe two, 14, verse 13 through 14. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, in the upper room, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. First of all, our prayer is in Jesus' name. It's in Jesus' name. Anything you pray should be in the name of Jesus. What is that? It's not the trite saying at the end of the prayer. It's not trite. It's not, you know, the all the enchanting phrase that gets you everything you want. You know, the please and thank you of politeness, of prayer. That's not what it's about. The name, praying in the name of Christ means you're praying according to His character. It means that you're praying in accordance with His life, how He lived. Which gives us some thought about praying about frivolous things. And praying for our comfort. Praying according to His name is praying according to God's will. Because Jesus would not do, nor would His character be, anything but the will of God. So, at first, our prayer in this passage, in verse 13, the first part, whatever you ask in my name, that's the first part of the statement, our prayer is in Jesus' name. Secondly, our prayer, our prayers are in the name of Christ for God's glory. Look at verse 13, second part, B. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So our prayers should be in the name of Christ for the glory of God. That means if God does it, if He answers your... Before you pray, you ask this question. I think it's safe to ask. Can I pray this prayer knowing the character of Jesus? Can I pray this prayer that I'm about to pray, knowing that it must bring glory to God? You know, so when, when your prayer life, when you want to examine your prayer life, those are good questions to ask. Is this according to God's glory? Is this according to the character of Christ? Is this something Christ modeled for us that I'm asking for? Third, our prayers will be answered according to God's will by the power of Christ for God's glory. They're answered based on God's will. His revealed will we know. His secret will we can never know. And so a lot of the daily prayers you're offering up fall into that secret will category a lot of times. I mean, we know it's God's will for you not uh, for you to refrain, to stay away from lust. So when you pray the prayer, asking God to shield your eyes from lustful visions and from thoughts that lead to sin, you are absolutely in the will of God, and that prayer will be answered. I don't, I don't have any doubt about that. You may run past His provision and still sin, but when you ask Him, He'll provide a way of escape. I know that. But when we get down to the minute the more minute level, the, the more practical level, sometimes we can't know what God's will is. We pray, and the outcome is His will. And that's the best we know. 
right? You pray for a job. God said work. Be productive. So you pray for a job. And for whatever reason, as hard as you try and as much as you give yourself to it, there's no job. For whatever reason, in that season, all we know is that it's not God's will at that moment for you to have a job. If it was, He'd give you a job. He'd make a way. Now, that's what I got from this text, John 14, 13 through 14. He answers it according to God's will for God's glory. Okay? So our prayers are in His name. They're centered around the glory of God. They're according to His will. Second verse in the teaching of Jesus on prayer, John 15, 7 through 8. And then we'll get to our text, and then I'll put it in context. John 15, 7 through 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. One thing about the whatever statement. Now, that's where the questions come in. Whatever. What is Whatever. Well, from the first set of verses, we know whatever is in His name. Whatever you ask will be given to you in the name, in the character, in the example of Christ. So when you ask something according to His character, He also qualifies it by it must bring glory to God. So the whatever that He will give you or that He will do for you must be in keeping with the character of Christ, it must bring glory to God and it must be according to God's will. And then whatever you ask, you'll do it. So it's not a blanket statement that you ask for a million dollars and it rains down from heaven. It's not like the Geico money. That's kind of how we pray. We, we want it to be like the Geico money. Say so our prayer, get up and there's eyeballs on dollar bills over there dancing in the corner. That's not how it works. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not a genie in a bottle to give us our whims and our desires at our beck and call. And he doesn't set himself up that way. Look in verse five, uh, 7 and 8. Second, uh, second verse, our prayers are linked to our abiding in Christ. In other words, we're going to pray in his name according to God's will for his glory and the surest way to do that is if you're abiding in Christ through His Word. Have you ever noticed how weak your prayer life is when you're not in God's Word? It's hard to pray. That's where most of you are. Just to be honest, if we're just, we're, honesty is a good quality to have and it's good in the new year. We've all made resolutions, which we probably have already broken three days in. So let's just be honest. A lot of us don't pray. Oh, I mean, you pray before meal, you Say a little word before you slip into bed. When you're in a tight, when you're in a tough situation, you offer up a little ditty here or there. But I'm talking about concerted prayer. Set aside time to pray. Most Christians don't do it. Most Christians don't do it. And then wonder and fuss at God about why their life is so weak. And their faith is so shaken. And they're so unproductive. I mean, I've been there. I'm not fussing at you. I'm telling you about myself, too. There's been a lot of days I come to the end of the day and think, this day was shot, wasted, terrible. What good did I do for the kingdom? Only to remember, well, <laughs> I'd never prayed about anything. I never asked God for anything. I never 
focused on His character and His glory. Any today. It was all about me. And I wonder why it was wasted. Now you string a week of those together, and then a month, and before long you don't pray because you're so out of touch with Him. You're not abiding in Him. You don't have a desire to pray anymore. And some of you are there. And it's a new year, and so I'll challenge you. I'm going to challenge you practically. Set aside time to pray. I'm not talking about an hour. Some of you, I mean, you know, that's way out there. I'm saying 15 minutes. When your feet hit the floor, you go to your place to pray for 15 minutes. Secondly, when you do that, when you pray in that place with God's Word. Open His Word, read it, meditate on it for a moment, and then begin to pray His Word back to Him about your life. You'll be, you'll be amazed at how your prayer life is revolutionized this year if you do those three things. Set aside a specific time to pray. Go to a specific place to accomplish that task. And take God's Word with you and read it and pray God's Word back to Him about your life. And finally, pray, as John Piper says, in concentric circles. Pray for your soul. Pray for your family. Pray for your neighborhood. Pray for your church. Pray for your state. Pray for your nation. Pray for the whole world. And pray His Word back in that place at that time. And do it consistently. And the more you're in His Word, the more you will not be... So some of you, just as I said that, said, oh, this is just legalism. It's just duty. The preacher's preaching the law. That's immaturity. On your part. That's immaturity. I know. I've been there. I get there sometimes even now. It's not duty and drudgery. It's not. It's commitment. It's discipline. It's expectation. It's investment in a relationship. That's what it is. You set aside time for your wife, I hope, or your husband, so you might talk, so that you might build a relationship, so that you might have a productive and fruitful marriage. I hope you do those things, and you don't call that legalism or drudgery. So all I'm saying is, with the Lord Jesus, why not the same? It's not rocket science what Jesus is teaching about prayer. According to my name, according to God's will, for His glory, that is accomplished by abiding in my Word, in me. Abiding in me, in my Word. Second second part of this verse, it's linked to mission. It's linked to a mission, a life mission. And it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Our prayers are linked to a mission, a life mission, a life mission. Whatever it is God has given you as your ministry, as your life, as your calling, it's linked to that. You're not praying outside of that. You're praying in that mission. And we all have a nuanced mission. You don't do what I do. I don't do what you do. Some of your mission is to be the absolute number one salesman in your field. For the glory of God. You need to pray according to that way. Don't, don't pray prayers that would fit my life. 
Pray prayers that fit your life. He wants you to be fruitful in your way of life. If you're a carpenter, if you're an electrician, if you're a musician, if you're a teacher, if you're a child, whatever your role in life is, whatever your mission, the mission is for His glory. Pray according to mission. Pray for fruit to be born in your life. Don't, don't, don't pray high and holy prayers that have to do with my life or my calling. What good does that do? Well, you can pray for me, but don't pray it for you. It's impractical for some of you. Some of you pray, God, you know, it's almost like you're praying that God would give you 20 hours this week to study God's Word. It's impractical. It's not going to happen. Eric's got to go to Honda. And they ain't paying him to take his Bible out and study. Right? You're going to get fired. You don't need to be praying your life like it's my life. There's not some sequence to prayer. My life looks different than yours. My mission looks different than yours. Yours is just as important as mine. God wants you to pray in your way, in your mission, for His glory, in His name, by His character, for His will to be done where you are. That make you holy to ask for something that's impractical. It's not going to happen. Okay? And so He says here in this passage... That our prayers come from our abiding in Christ and His Word, which causes us to bear fruit. And then in our passage, his last statement on prayer is in our passage, he says that our prayers will be answered for our joy. For our joy. Now that may unfortunately look like a contradiction to what I've already said. Because we often think of our joy in the context of worldliness. We usually wrap our joy up in all kinds of temporary, temporal things. But Jesus knows that those who abide in Him and pray according to His name for God's will and His glory, that their greatest joy is that God's glory be revealed. And so therefore, the more joy you have means more glory revealed. More glory revealed means more joy for you. Joy is not the antithesis of Christianity. It's the thesis of Christianity. Paul would say that we are to be the most joyful people on the planet. If not, We need to examine what's wrong with us. I'm going to say it again. If your friends and your family would characterize you as downtrodden, depressed, unhappy, bitter, angry, serious, busy, And not loving and joyful and merciful and anticipating his return. Something's not right. When you met Paul, when you met Peter, when you met John, just by being around them, people said they've been with Jesus. What was that? It was joy. It bled out of them. It it bled out of them. Paul being beaten almost to death, sitting in his cell, 
sang praises to God. He shook the foundations of a prison through worship. Not in the comfy, cozy, warm home, but in the dirty, dingy, wet, damp, cold cell. Not from the comfort of the chiropractor's office with his back aligned correctly, but stooped, scarred, bleeding, feverish, suffering. And yet if you met him, you might say a lot of things about him. He's ugly, dish, you know, malformed. All, you might say a lot of things about him. His eyes look horrible. He's an old man. But then everyone would say, he's joyful. How's that dude joyful? Jesus says it's because he prayed in the name of Christ, by the will of God, for the glory of God, that, bear, that he might bear much fruit as he abides in Christ for the fulfillment of his joy. That would be Jesus' answer about the Apostle Paul. And so our prayers are centered around our joy, God's glory, because God's glory is displayed in the power of Jesus, which is displayed often through answering prayer. Now, I've said all of this about prayer, and you're saying, in our text, Carl, why choose prayer? As the focus of this text, because you all, all probably like me, got focused in on a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Verse 16. That's what the disciples focused on and they got confused. They didn't know what he meant by it. There's a lot of possibilities, I think, or three possibilities for what a little while means. I think Jesus in this passage is referencing his death, burial and resurrection. In a little while, you're not going to see me. I'll be buried. And then in a little while, you will see me. I'll be resurrected. I think that's some of what he's saying. I think he's also making a veiled reference to Pentecost. They were all together, all 120, in the upper room praying. In Christ's name, according to God's will, for God's glory, that they might be fruitful. And he sent the Holy Spirit. And they saw him again. You see that? That's a possibility. I'm going to give you what I think is the main reason John and Jesus recorded this and said this for us right here. A little while is his second coming. A little while and you won't see me. And then a little while and you will see me. Jesus spoke of his second coming as in just a little while. Have you ever been on a trip and you got little ones in the car? Christmas is a good example. There's all this anticipation in the kids about what grand's going to get them. It's just built up. They're excited. And three and a half hours feels like an eternity. And so they say, their patience is lost again. They say, how much longer? How much longer until we're going to be there? And what do you say? To comfort them? Just 
a little while. And then they anticipate again. It builds, it builds. How much longer? When are we going to get there? Their love for the gifts they're going to get and the people they're going to see and the food they're going to eat, just they can't contain it. They're just excited and they keep blurting out, how much longer, how much longer? And the answer is still, it's just a little while. It's just a little while. That's Jesus' description of what it's like to be a believer waiting on him to come that second time. When's the last time that the anticipation built to the point and crescendoed into a question like, how much longer? Has that ever happened for you in your life? As a believer, have you ever gotten so impatient waiting on the coming of Christ that you cried out to God how much longer? Not in frustration, but in anticipation, in love, in honor, in praise. Has it ever happened? It was happening to believers in the first century. Paul had to keep reminding them, just because people dying doesn't mean Jesus isn't coming. He's coming. It happened for the Apostle John at the end of his revelation. He's wanting to know when is the second coming. And Jesus says, there's going to be a great feast and you need to be inviting. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Church says, come. Come. Even so, what? Come, Lord Jesus. It's just a little while. It's just a little while. How great is our God that 2,000 years is it's just a little while. How magnificent is He? How much is He to be praised and worshipped? You say, the anticipation is there, Carl, but the suffering is too. Jesus didn't cover that over. Look at verse 20. I say to you, you will weep and you will cry, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but the sorrow will turn to joy. It happened at His death, didn't it? They were defeated. They were downtrodden. They had lost hope. And then he was resurrected. It happened at Pentecost. They were defeated. They were downtrodden. He had ascended. What was going to happen now? What happens now? The Spirit comes and they're fulfilled. They're joyful. It's going to happen to us at the second coming. Suffering, pain, misery, lamenting. And then he comes. And our joy is fulfilled. As we close. I might ask this. As believe, this is really for believers. If you're lost today, you really can't understand any of what I've said. And it makes no sense to you. But believer, that person who would call themselves a believer, is there any anticipation in your life? Are you waiting for His return? Do you expect it? Do you look for it? Do you pray for it? Do you ask your daddy how much longer? I can't answer that question for you. You can't answer it for me. But I'm asking you to take the time and the energy to figure out whether that's true about you or not. 
And if you don't anticipate his return, and if you're not looking for him, and if you have no desire in that direction, what does it say spiritually about you? And the second application or question I would ask in application is, is your energy and in your anticipation being channeled in prayer? Or is it just frivolous, wasteful waiting? In your anxious desire for him to come back, are you unproductive? Or are you praying according to his name, by God's will, for his glory, that you might be bearing much fruit so that your joy might be fulfilled. Are you, is that your aim? Is that your life? Or is your life more characterized by self-centeredness on yourself and your family and what's comfortable and what's easy for you? I can't answer. But I'm challenging you to think. Think through that. Find the real answer. Don't gloss over it with some easy answer and move on. Really know whether that's true of you. I think that this sets us up for what comes the rest of the month, which we got several things going on. We're going to have one more sermon in John 16, and then we're going to go to a Sanctity of Life message and a Race Relations message, and then two vision sermons. If you... Don't spend time thinking about these two questions. Then the vision sermons won't make much of a difference in your life. Because this church is about to morph by the grace of God into a doctrinally driven good deeds church. And if your joy is not in Him, the good deeds will be drudgery. And there will be legalism. And you will hate it. You'll be busy, but you'll be, uncon- incon- uh, you'll be inconsistent and you won't be content. But we're making a change here. I mean, it's a good change. I'm excited about the direction. Our elders are excited about the direction of going from being a doctrinally deep church, which is what we will always be, but also a good deeds church. And without these two questions answered, the good deeds will just make you angry. Frustrated, tired, legalistically bound. Okay? So answer the questions. Let's pray. Father, we come to you.